Hey everybody, this is Round 6 MMA Talk, the fight after the fight, with me, your boy, Noah Petrie. I know, I know what you're thinking, another MMA podcast. I know, there's a lot of us out there, but if you like bold, unapologetic hot takes, a detailed, broken down view of the fight game, and of course, stomach-hurting comedy, well, come to the right place. What is going on, everyone? This is episode 20, R6 MMA Talk, the fight after the fight with me, your boy, Noah Petrie. And of course, I'm going to be going over UFC 279 that just happened this past weekend. All the fights are happening this weekend coming up. And of course, all the MMA news drama that's going down in the MMA sphere. Before I get into all that, I just want to tell you guys that we are now on our Heart Radio, and we are now on Amazon Podcasts. So you can check out our 6 MMA Talk, the fight after the fight, on those two locations as well. We are working on getting us on YouTube, so that will be happening. Now, it wouldn't be video just yet. It will only be audio. So for the, for the, uh, the visual aspect, it would just be my logo, but we will be audibly on YouTube very, very soon as well. So guys, look out for that as well, and let's get into it. So before I actually get into the fight card itself, I want to get into just the overall shit show that was this this card. Dude, this card was all over the place, man. There were times where I didn't know what the main event was going to be, what the co-main event was going to be, what who any of the fires were happening. So before I get into all the missed weight cuts that were going down, I want to address that. In the post-fight conference that Friday, the press conference, there was something that broke out. People were saying it was a, you know, a fight that broke out and, you know, for people's safety, Dana White had to cancel the press conference and that kind of stuff, which, listen, if you know people have bad blood against each other, why would you have limited amount of security? You should have people coming out one by one with security tailing them all throughout the way so that this kind of shit doesn't happen. So I'm surprised that we didn't have enough security on staff to stop this from happening. But not only that, dude, fighters are so emotionally immature at times. Like seriously, you're getting so riled up before a press conference. You're about to fight the dude in a couple hours, literally the next day. Like you can't wait 24 hours to get your hands on the person. And the case of, you know, Kevin Holland and Hamza Shamayev who didn't have beef, I mean, who uh, who did had beef, but weren't scheduled to fight each other. That's a little different. I get it. You know, you're not scheduled to fight the guy. The guy's talking crap. But then again, listen, you're the new kid on the block. You're Dana White's favorite toy. People are going to take a jab at you. You can't just be, you know, emotionally immature and ready to just throw down all the time and getting riled up for no reason. Yeah, he's on the younger side. I think me and him are the same age, which is fucking insane. But... Why don't let people? Why are you letting people get to your head like this? You know, to the point where you're risking the fight being canceled. Because if someone, if someone would have got a cut, the fight was going to be canceled right there. So you're risking, you know, your paycheck, your livelihood, for bullshit, for someone just saying dumb shit. So it, it, it was it's a complete shit show in that point. Then we got into all the constant weight misses that happened. Chris Barnett missed weight, the heavyweight mark, which is pretty insane. I'm gonna get into that later. Shamayev missed weight by almost 10 pounds and then, you know, after his fight against Holland, proceeded to say he doesn't give a shit. 
even though Dana, even though you know Joe Rogan was was sunning him a little bit in, in that interview, but get into that later as well. So of course, Shamai misses weight, Barnett misses weight, a ton of other fighters misses weight, and basically all the main card fights were just catch weight, which Dana White hates catch weights. Because it doesn't make sense. You don't progress the division any sort of way in a catchweight fight. So I can see why his hesitancy and the fact that he hates doing catchweights and he'll only have to when he really needs to, which in this case he really needed to. So as you all know, this fight was supposed to be Nate Diaz against Shemaev, which is a horrible bout for Nate Diaz's sake. Tony Ferguson against Li Jing Leong, which is a horrible bout in Tony Ferguson's case. Um, Rodriguez against Holland, which would have been a very interesting fight. And so on and so forth. So as we know, the main event gets canceled. So in that whole mix-up, we didn't know what was going on. Shamayev can't fight Nate Diaz when he's fucking 10 pounds overweight. So Dustin Poirier was probably going to step in, which would have been fucking horrible for Nate Diaz. But I think the UFC did the right thing with what they had, which they just switched around the fights. They had Tony Ferguson against Nate Diaz, which is all around a better fight for both men. So they kind of lucked out there. They had Lee Jin Leong against Rodriguez. Lee Jin Leong kind of got the short end of the stick there, which I'm again to later. And they had Shamayev against Holland, which both men were beefing that entire week coming into the fight. So it kind of makes sense there too. So in the long run, a lot of the fights, the fights were rearranged in a way that it made sense. I would love to see how well the fight card did, pay-per-view buys-wise, um, even with the mix-up. But... It, it was a fight that, honestly, I think it, it worked out for most of the parties involved, for the most part. Um, so, yeah, dude, it was a complete shit show. This is the second non-title fight main card that they did this year. I'm thinking they're going to start doing this going forward. Which, dude, if it's big fights with big fighters, I, I don't really mind a, a non-pay-per-view title fight, you know? If it's two very big fighters and... They're very popular and a fight makes sense. I don't mind that. That doesn't bother me whatsoever. But for this fight card, it, it, the, the, the Nate diaz Shamaya fight, like I said beforehand last week, it was kind of bullshit in that regard. We know that, you know, they were just trying to fuck Nate Diaz to make sure that he wasn't the hottest free agent coming out of his UFC contract, but it looked out in the long run for Nate. Of course, gonna get on to it later. But to start off the card, I want to get into the prelims, early prelims, which is a first of me covering the early prelims, which is Dumont against Wolf. Obviously, the reason why I'm covering this fight, not because I find Dumont extremely attractive, and she's a very good fighter too for a division that's basically dead, but Wolf is a three-time national women's champion in boxing. She made her, she made the change over into MMA. She was 1-0, and now the thing is, in the 145 division, you're not going to get a tune-up fight because there's really no one in the division that can be tuned up. I don't think Felicia Spencer is even on the roster anymore for the UFC. So there's really not much for the division in that regard. So you're going to get someone who's a little bit more experienced, which was the case with Wolf getting Norma Dumont. Now, Norma Dumont is pretty well-rounded. She has fairly good striking. She has very good takedowns, as we can see. I was I was, I was, was a little... I, not, I don't want to say confused... But I was a little shocked that um, Dumont was standing with Wolf, you know, for most of the fight in that regard. Um, I would have thought the smart game plan going in was Wolf obviously doesn't have, you know, a skill set in takedown defense because she just transferred over. 
and you have takedown capabilities. So might as well just shoot for the takedown, get in submission, and end the fight clean and fast. Similar to what Shamayev did with Holland. But she stood on the feet for most of the fight. And honestly, she did very well. She 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 outstruck the boxer in that regard. And I would have thought maybe if you're going to strike with Wolf to maintain that distance in that range. And of course, utilize leg kicks. Because Wolf, of course, coming from boxing, you know, doesn't have... Yeah, the much experience kick checking leg kicks or getting kicked in the legs, dude. When you're not used to getting leg kicks and you start getting leg kicks, it's a game changer. So I thought maybe that would have been a game plan if she was standing with Wolf, which she did for the most part. But dude, she was piecing Wolf up on the feet. That second round, she dropped with her right hand, then dropped her again for right hand. I think Dumont won every single round of the three rounds. Oppressive victory from Dumont. Now people are saying, you know, maybe she should get a title shot. I don't know if she should get a title shot, to be honest with you. Just because, yeah, it's an impressive victory. She beat a former, you know, champion boxer. But the thing is, the boxer was basically, she was making her UFC debut, and she was only 1-0. So it's like, you're kind of expected to win this one. So I don't know if that necessarily warrants you a title shot. But then again, the division is dead. There really shouldn't be a division. So... I don't know what's the UFC's play after this. If they decide to give her a title shot, I'm not necessarily too... I'm not going to eject it too much. And now for the second fight, we have Barnangas Collier, which this fight was just pure madness from the very start. Before I get into the fight, we all know that Chris Barnett missed the weight, the heavyweight mark, and which is 265 pounds. And here's the thing, right? I'm going to give him a pass because he recently lost his fiance and, you know, fighting when you recently lost someone you love and you're about to marry can be incredibly difficult. I don't know the pain or, you know, the situation, so I can't relate there, but I'm guessing it's a very difficult thing to do and I'm going to give him a pass for, for missing that weight. But also the thing is, dude, you're 5'9 and you weigh 265 pounds plus. I'm 5'9". I weigh anywhere between 172 to 176. There's no reason why Chris Barnett is that freaking heavy at his height. Obviously, he's not healthy. He's fat. So he needs to change that, man. He seriously needs to change that. He's too damn big. Like what Chris Tucker said in, in Rush Hour 3. He's too damn big. You're, you're too big. You're too big for you're too big for that division. You have to start cutting weight. Realistically speaking, you should be fighting at Walter weight heaviest middleweight and he's an agile guy like for someone who is you know 265 pounds he's pretty flexible man he's pretty flexible and agile like in his UFC debut he threw a spinning heel kick for god's sakes like he he can have some potential at these lower weight classes add heavyweight you're not doing yourself any favors there you're too heavy you're small for a division and you're far too heavy so I think he should start looking into cutting some weight. Then again, I'm not sure. It, he, he's not the youngest fighter on the roster. So you would have to focus on cutting weight, literally 100 pounds. And then your body has to get used to carrying around that weight and fighting in that weight. It's, I don't think it's going to be possible to where he is right now in his career. So he's most likely going to have to stay at heavyweight. And if you're going to stay at heavyweight, that's fine. Be a lighter heavyweight. Be 240, 230, somewhere around there where you're more nimble than the rest of the heavyweights in the division. You're already the smaller guy, regardless of your weight, so might as well use it to your advantage if you're going to stay in that weight class. But if you're going to stay 
265 plus, you're not doing yourself any favors. So I'm not going to put it past him that he missed weight because of what's going on in his life right now. But I am going to criticize the fact that he shouldn't be as heavy as he is. But going back to the fight there, uh, you know, it was pure madness from the very beginning. Both men were just swinging for defenses. I think Collier is the more experienced fighter. I think he's the better fighter overall. I think he just had the notion that I'm better than you. I know I'm better than you, so I'm going to go in there and put you away, which he almost did in that first round. He dropped He dropped Barnett with a great right hand. Barnett was able to recover, which was very impressive. Um, Collier did hit him with a knee as well. Now, after the right hand, his eye kind of closed up pretty bad, and it, it, you know, it looked like he basically could borderline see through it and after the knee that Collier landed against Barnett his jaw seemed his jaw was leaning to the left it looked like at first that his jaw was broken or dislocated which I thought it could be and I was kind of shocked that after the first round when the when the referee went to go check Collier I mean went to go check Barnett he didn't he completely ignored it he just checked the eye he only checked the eye he didn't check the jaw at all his jaw was completely leaning to the left. So I don't know what the injury was. If there was an injury, nothing came out as of yet. So I'll be monitoring that throughout this week to see if anything pops up. But it was just something that was so bizarre to see. Even the commentating team pointed out right away. DC pointed out right away. Rogan commented on it. But for some reason, the doctor looking at him square in the face and didn't see it. So there goes that one. Um, there wouldn't be the first time that UFC doctors have missed something. But in that second round, Barnett... Well, the Storm was able to rock him, get on top of him. And Barnett's pretty flexible, man. He was doing a, when uh, when Collier was trying to get him into a heel hook in a, in a uh, leg submission, leg lock submission, Barnett was basically doing a split, man. He's, he, again, he's pretty flexible for a big guy. For someone that big, he's very flexible. But Barnett just had him full mounted that entire time, just raining down punches. It didn't seem like it was doing too much damage to Collier, to be honest with you. But with the sheer volume and the fact that Collier just wasn't able to reverse position, it was constantly taking punches and just the only thing he can do is shell up and be defensive, the fight has to be called. So I'm I'm happy that that Barnett got the win, you know, with his fiance and everything that happened there, and he didn't win, his, his last bout didn't go so well, so I'm happy he was able to get the win here, um, and be able to, to persevere through the storm. Then we have Walker against Kutalaba, and the first thing is first, when Walker was, you know, walk, when he was doing his, 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 his entrance to the octagon, I was crying, laughing, because he was just dancing the entire fucking time, it's gonna be Brazilian fighters who are gonna dance on the way to the octagon, Walker, Pereira, who is just one of his training partners, um, Charles Oliveira, is always going to be those dudes who are going to do, you know, the whole dancing thing on the way to the octagon, which I just found hilarious, man. And it was a shot that he's dancing and the, the view is 4K from the back and it was fucking hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing. But dude, Walker looked pretty good in this one. Now he does do this thing that is kind of a feint, but he like, typically when someone uses a feint, there's their arms and their head movement going in and out in that fashion. For Walker, he, he's kind of like he's flexing his pelvic muscle forward. You know, it's like he's flexing his pelvis forward. It's, it's, I don't know if that's just like a tick or if he's trying to faint there. I'm not quite sure, to be honest with you. It looks kind of weird. Maybe because he's so fucking big for that division. Dude was like 5'5", five, 5'6", five, 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 I mean, 5'5". Five, five. Yeah, it's not big at all. I meant to say 6'5", 6'6", 6'4", somewhere around there. Dude's fucking huge for the division. 
Um, so maybe it's that that could be a that could be a play on it. But Kutalaba catches a leg kick, was able to take um, uh, Johnny Walker down. Now Johnny Walker is substantially bigger than Kutalaba. Eventually Johnny Walker is able to reverse position, get him on the feet, grab his back, got a beautiful takedown, and was able to sink in a rear naked choke. Kutalaba now, to his credit, he stayed in that rear naked choke for a while, man. He try, he really tried to fight out of it and persevere through it, but eventually he ends up tapping, and Johnny Walker does the worm, which I was scared shitless. Once I saw him doing the worm, I was shook, because we all know, you know, his career was soaring high until he did the worm that blew out his his uh his left shoulder, which his career just haven't looked the same since. So he did the worm, thankfully didn't injure himself. I'm happy that he got the win. Now, there is some controversy involving his team says that after he won, they basically booted him out the arena right after, which I doubt this was necessarily the UFC's fault. Dana White was brought to light. They said, honestly, I didn't even know this fucking happened. It was probably the arena and the COVID protocol and all that kind of shit. So, I, you know, Johnny Walker is not necessarily a threat. Um, I don't think he necessarily did anything backstage or anything like that that can, you know, um, that that made him that made a reason for them to boot him so fast and his team so fast. But there's literally a picture of him just walking shoeless through, you know, the strip in Las Vegas. It's just fucking hilarious. But dude, you couldn't wait till the dude puts his fucking shoes on, like seriously. So I don't know what happened there. We're, we're I, I want to hear more from it in that regard. Um, but was it the UFC's doing? I honestly have no freaking clue. Now we have Arena Donna against Chaisan, right? And this is a very entertaining fight. It was such a stark contrast between the first round and the second round. Now, in that first round, the first thing I know is how big Macy is. Macy's fucking huge for that division. Again, this is a catchweight fight. So, in that first round, there really wasn't much going on on the feet. I think Aldana did do the better work on the feet. She was pressuring Macy against the cage. Just constantly applying that pressure and making sure that Macy's back is the cage. She did land some good leg kicks, just targeting that lead leg. And she was hitting her with some straight rights. Um, the right hand was landing. Now, Macy did shoot for a takedown, which she didn't do any setup beforehand, you know. And she just, from a distance, shot for the takedown. Aldana was able to reverse it and got onto an armbar. Now, at that point, I thought the fight was just about to be finished right there. Because that armbar looked like it was in deep. It looked like, you know, she definitely hyperextended it and some angles looked like she could have possibly broke it. But Macy perseveres through the storm, was able to reverse it and gets into another arm bar. And then afterwards, Aldana was just raining down ground and pound to the to that round was over. Now, some people were saying that there was a tap, which I watched a replay a few times. And Macy does tap once on the leg, but that's it. Guys, it's not a tap. That is not a tap. I'm sorry to tell you guys. There's something called a fake tap, which some fighters would do, which is kind of a dirty move, where they would tap once, and the fighter doing a submission would think that their opponent is tapping and let go or let up, and it will allow the fighter who is in the submission to reverse position. I don't necessarily know if that's what happened, Um, because during when the tap happens, she rolls over, and trying to reverse the arm bar and it didn't work. So maybe she was just trying to adjust position or try, she was going to grab the leg and decided not to. Who knows? But at the end of the day, it's not a tap. You can't tap once 
and that be considered a tap. When someone is tapping to a submission, they're tapping multiple times, whether it be on the canvas or on their opponent. Just one tap doesn't necessarily warrant, you know, them tapping to a submission because that can happen accidentally. You know, they can do the fake tap. It, that will, if it was just one tap, that will cause so much confusion and there will be early stoppages of submissions where there really shouldn't be. So it is one, one, she literally just tapped her once. It does not count as a tap. So for all those who are saying it is, unfortunately, I'm sorry, it's not. Um, and that second round is completely different from the first round. The second round, Macy was applying that pressure. She was going after it. She was able to secure the takedown. Honestly, had Aldana's back for most of the round. Now, there was a few times where Aldana was sitting in the upright position and was trying to go for a leg lock, but at the end of the day, she wasn't able to get it. I would say it's easily Macy's round that second round. So the first round, Aldana's round. The second round, Macy's round. The third round, Macy, I mean, Aldana visibly looked tired. She was flat-footed. She did look exhausted. She is a striker. She is not used to um, grappling in that regard. So, of course, when a striker is grappling, when they're not used to grappling, it's going to drain their gas tank. So, Aldana visibly looked tired. Uh, Macy was winning on the feet in that round. She secured a takedown. It was... Halfway to go in the round. I think it's going to be a clear victory for Macy. Aldana throws a couple of up kicks. It wasn't just one up kick. She threw a flurry of up kicks. Hit Macy right on the liver. Macy goes down. No one knows what the fuck was going on in the first couple of seconds until we find out it was a liver shot and drop Macy. Now, here's where my take comes in. <laughs> and I laugh because I got shit for this one. I got shit for this one in the beginning. Then afterwards, people started agreeing with me. And after she gets hit with the up kick, the fight is an ending sequence. Even Aldana was confused. Now, in the post-fight interview with Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan specifically asked her, that was an up kick to the liver. We never seen that before. Did you train it in, tra in, in your training camp? She says, yes, I trained that and we train a bunch of things. That's where I'm calling bullshit. That's where I'm calling bullshit. And the reason why I'm calling bullshit is, one, training up kicks, right? You can train up kicks. That's not necessarily shocking or surprising there. But training up kicks specifically targeting to the liver, like you said, I, I can't believe it. It's just something that's so out there, so out of the ordinary training for a move that you would most likely 99% of the time in your career won't ever really have to use. So wasting hours and hours of precious fight camp time training something that's so random that you most likely would never use it. I, I have to call bullshit there. I have to call bullshit. Until I see a video that's time stamped that she was actually training that kick specifically to the liver that she said that she trained, I'm going to call bullshit. Now, I'm not hating that she won the fight. Like, she won fair and square. That's cool. And yeah, it's an amazing kick and it happened. And it's only the third ever up kick TKO that we ever seen in the UFC. That's fine. Or MMA for that regard. That's fine. You know, it's impressive. But to say that you train it is where I have an issue with it. And, and here's the thing. Do I think she, she trained up kicks? Yeah, she probably trained up kicks. Now, I guarantee you... And most major MMA gyms, they're probably not training up kicks. When you look at most up kicks that happen in MMA, most of it's a flurry of kicks. 
it's just the person trying to hit the other person as hard as they can. It's not really something that's too calculated in that regard. It wasn't like Anderson Silva, I forgot the guy's name who he hit the upkick with before he was in the UFC. Um, that Anderson Silva got disqualified for. But that was specifically targeted upkick to the face. Now the, his opponent was grounded as with Anderson Silva was. So it, it caused disqualification. So it wasn't like a super well-timed upkick where I was just... You're waiting for it, and bam, hit the liver right there. She threw a flurry of upkicks. So at that point, you're just fucking throwing them shits to hit something. What she did, she hit the liver. My issue is, I just don't believe you that you train for those upkicks. One, the probability of you landing that shot is fairly... So I'm going to run it down. One, the probability of you getting in a position to actually start throwing upkicks is slim. So you're training for a, you're training a move that you most likely will probably never use. Two, out of all the upkicks that were ever thrown in the UFC, it were only three times, this being the third one, that it led to a TKO victory. So you're training a move that you most likely never use to get a result that's beyond super rare. Like I think there's more twister submissions more twist submissions to UFC than there are upkicks by TKO. TKO by upkicks. So it's a move. It's a, it's a result that is beyond rare. So you're training for a move that you most likely would never use to get a result that you most likely would never get. I, I'm just... No high-level MMA coach is going to sit there and train upkicks specifically to deliver when they can be training a bunch of other stuff, especially in fight camp when the hours are precious and you want to make sure that you're training for your opponent as much as possible. That's why I'm, I'm calling bullshit. It's just so random and so improbable that I just can't believe it, man. Do I think that she trained upkicks? Probably. I think she probably trained upkicks in passing... I don't doubt her there. I don't think she trained it extensively. But to say that you train upkicks specifically to target the liver, that's where I call bullshit. And in the video that was posted on Twitter, I, I call it out. I'm like, listen, I'm calling BS here. I just don't believe that she trained upkicks specifically to the liver. Like, this so improbable and random that I just can't believe it. I'm calling it BS. And there are people saying, oh, you're just hating that a fighter is winning, or she said in the interview she trained it. I'm like, listen, I, when, when fighters say they do something, I take it at face value. I'm not going to believe every fighter said that every fighter said they did something. You know, like, I'm not going to believe every fighter says I got an injury. I'm not going to believe every fighter says I trained this. I'm not going to believe every fighter says this, this, and this happened, or this is the reason why I lost, or whatever the case may be. Because people lie. So why would I take anything on face value? So I'm not going to believe right off the bat that she says she trained it. Um, just because she says she did. So, yeah, you know, and there were people saying, oh, no, she says she trained um, up kicks, not up kicks to the liver. No. Joe Rogan asked specifically, did you train up kicks to the liver? She said, yes, I trained that in different things. So that argument's out the window already, if you were just watch the, the post-fight interview. So that's that's my take on it, man. There's people who are arguing against me and this kind of stuff. And then the clip of her post-fight interview saying she trained it and that's when a bunch of people who are agreeing with me saying yeah i don't believe that like there's just no way i don't believe it so you know before prior when it was just a video of her throwing the up kick me calling bullshit everyone's up in arms with me and afterwards when she's saying that she trained it 
then everyone wants to agree with me. So listen, I'm not trying to hate on her victory. She got the W. She got it. You know, even though it, you know she was losing that last round, she got it. She got the TKO victory. Do I think she gets a title shot from it? No, me personally. But I think she should, she should rematch Holly because she thought she got a really bad, really bad loss against Holly. And I think if they were to fight again now, I think Aldana would uh, do a lot better and honestly win that fight. So and avenge that loss. And Holly is a big name, so I think they should probably run that fight back. Um, but dude, I I just have to call BS in that regard. And listen, if she posts a video that's time stamped prior to the fight that she was actually training that specific kick, and I'll be like, listen, I would come on this podcast and I'll say I was wrong, she was right. I take it all back. Congratulations. Um, you trained for a kick that even though would be super improper to use, improbable to use, but you used it and you got a TKO victory. Nothing but respect for you. So if that video comes out, then I'll be the first one to say I'm wrong. But until it does, I'm going to call bullshit. Sorry. I'm going to call bullshit. And now we have Li Jingliang against Daniel Rod. And honestly... I think Li Jingliang in general got the uh, the short end of the stick with all the changes that happened in this fight card. As you all know, he was supposed to fight Tony Ferguson, which would have been an extremely favorable matchup for him. It wouldn't have done him anything in regards to advancing in the division because he's ranked number 14, but it, it would have been a nice victory on his resume. I don't think Tony would have stood a chip. Um, I don't think Tony would have stood a chance there, to be honest with you. But he gets Daniel Rodriguez. So not only in the post in the press conference, um, he wasn't able to show off his suit, which was fucking fly as fuck. And it was funny because after the, the press conference got canceled on Twitter, the only thing people were talking about was is Lee's suit okay? Which we still gotta know if it's okay. Because it's a fucking fantastic suit, and you could tell it's expensive. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a Canali suit. But uh yeah, people, you know, he had this amazing suit. He didn't get the showcase. He had a favorable fight on the co-main event, which he's no longer on the co-main event. He had to get three fights down against opponent who is bigger than him, and he's fighting 10 pounds up. So he got the receiving end of the stick out of anyone, probably excluding Kevin Hovland and this entire ordeal. So I hoped, and he got robbed. Personally, I think he won the fight. So he got robbed. And everyone thinks he won the fight too. Even Dana White thought he won the fight. So he got robbed on top of that. On top of everything that happened, he got robbed. So I hope that Dana White took care of him and gave him, you know, a bag of cash outside of the, the money he got for his, his show um, purse. So it, it kind of sucks in that regard. But the fight was entertaining, man. The fight was very entertaining. It was a very close fight, a very back and forth fight. Both men were shoot fighting point finding so a lot of leg kicks being thrown i think lee jing leong did a very good job going to daniel rodriguez's body both men were really trying to capitalize on counter striking which they weren't able to to really land anything too significant in that regard um honestly am i that upset at the judge's scorecard no i'm not necessarily upset that daniel rod got the win i'm more upset at the judge's scorecard itself because I can see how someone would give Daniel Rodriguez the win. I had Lee Jingliang winning the first two rounds and losing the third. Again, a very, very close fight. If you thought Daniel Rodriguez won, I'm really not going to argue with you there. 
What I'm upset at is that when you look at the judges' scorecards, they're a mess. There wasn't one round that them three unanimously agreed on. It was all over the place. It just got you to some weird decision. It was like, dude, like, it, it, it literally looked like, like three different people watching three different fights. That's how out of whack the scorecard was. So I'm kind of annoyed at that. Not necessarily that Daniel Rodriguez won. So do I think that, you know, Legion Leon is ranked 14. It is a catchweight bout. They fought at 180. Do I think Daniel Rodriguez should get the number 14 spot? No. Because in my opinion, I think Legion Leon got robbed. Not only that, it's a catchweight bout. So Legion Leon had to fight at 180 when he doesn't fight at 180. You know? So it, they didn't fight in a division. So nothing should happen. It change, it, just nothing should happen in uh, any changes in ranking in that regard. So maybe they could run it back at 170 to see how maybe that goes. Um, but do I think anything should change? No. And I think Legion Leong should definitely get paid for, for uh, getting shitted on and that horror deal for UFC 279. Now I'm going to go over Shemaev against Holland, right? And this fight was honestly over as soon as it started. As soon as the fight started, as I said beforehand, Shemaev fucking missed weight by almost 10 pounds. Couldn't fight Nate anymore. Holland, the man that he is, he'll fight anyone, anywhere, anytime. He decided to, to fight Shemaev, which is a fight most people wouldn't agree with. Well, we agree to. Of course, Kevin Holland is... Not the best grappler in the world, so this is probably the worst matchup in the division for him. But he fights Shemaev right off the bat. I think Shemaev had a really good game plan coming into this because Holland is a formidable striker. Holland could very much compete with Shemaev on the feet, maybe even beat him on the feet, if they were just to go out all out striking. Now, of course, Shemaev has the advantage in grappling. That's extremely clear. So I think Shemaev did a very good job with his fight IQ, just going into it grappling, not even going to fucking strike you. I'm just going to go in, wrestle you, get submission, get out of there, bada bing, bada boom, I'm out of there. Which is exactly what he did. So I can't blame him for doing that. It's a smart thing to do. Now, you know, would it would have been, would have it been fun to see Shamayev fight Kevin Holland on the feet, knowing that they had so much back and forth beef going on the entire week? Yeah, everyone wanted to see that. But I can't blame Shemaev taking the easy route in that regard and making it look easy going there, wrestling against someone who doesn't have a strong grappling, you know, uh, a strong grappling backing and Kevin Holland and just, you know, taking the easiest route possible, the easiest route to a win. So I can't blame him in that regard. I think it's fight, I think it's very smart fight IQ. He had very bad fight IQ his last fight and he made up for it in this fight. Now... Credit to Kevin Holland because even though the fight was over in two minutes or so, Kevin Holland did a very good job in the beginning scrambling. He did a very good job scrambling at first. Now, he couldn't do it for very long, and eventually Shemaev got him on the ground. And I didn't expect Shemaev to get the submission out easily because Kevin Holland is a black belt in, in his own right. So I would I thought that Shamaya was gonna be able to get him on the ground, hold him on the ground, get some ground and pound, probably wear him out for three, four rounds, and maybe get submission in, in that fashion. But he he got him out of there right away for Doris, man. 
right away. So it was impressive in that regard. But here's the thing. He needs to fight a grappler. We can't have him fight strikers anymore. We know how it's gonna we know how it's gonna how it's gonna turn out if he fights a striker. We know. Shamaev is gonna go for a takedown and get the submission. Now he wasn't able to do that against Gilbert Burns, because Gilbert Burns, one, his takedown defense was fucking phenomenal. So he stuffed all of Shamaya's takedowns. Not only that, he's such a threat on the ground with his fourth degree black belt, which is the highest out of anyone I've probably ever seen in MMA. In regards to Hoist Grace, he's a seventh degree black belt, but he wasn't seventh degree black belt when he was fighting in the UFC. So out of everyone who is currently fighting in MMA, I think Gilbert Burns has the highest degree black belt, which says a lot. So taking that guy down is not a smart move at all. So uh you know, on the feet, he had to fight Gilbert Burns, which I think he lost that one, Shemaev. I'm not going to get into it. I already have gotten into it before. So we need to see Shemaev fight a grappler. We can't. We, we know how. We have to see him tested. And to see what he's truly made out of, we have to see him fight a grappler. We have to see him fight someone like a Rachmanov. Someone like a Sean Brady. Someone like a Kobe Covington. I think Kobe Covington makes the most sense because Shamayev is ranked, what, three or four? Kobe is ranked one. So it's just it's a smart move. It's a smart move to do. You know, Kobe is a high-level grappler. He has a tremendous gas tank. Shamayev, a high-level grappler, has a tremendous gas tank. We're really going to see what Shamayev is made out of if he fights Tony, if he fights Kobe Covington. Now, if he beats Kofi Covington, he's a real fucking deal. If he loses to him, I still think he's a real deal. We just know that he wasn't ready for, you know, the championship level caliber guys yet. Which I think Kofi Covington is, even though he's not the champion, I think he's a championship caliber guy. I think he would be the champion if Kamaru Usman wasn't around. So, we have to see Shamaya fight a, a grappler to see how he fares in that regard. If he can get the takedown, if he even would, would, would he even shoot for the takedown? Would he get taken down? We have to see this stuff. Until then, I'm not going to necessarily be impressed with him just fighting grapplers. I mean, him just fighting strikers, because we know what that outcome is going to be. Um, I want to get into the main event now. And I'm going to be honest with you. I did not care about this fight at all. Actually, watching this fight the first time around, I fell asleep. I saw the first round. I saw how fucking sloppy both men were. And I'm like, yo, I just knocked out. And I woke up with Nate being his hand raised. I didn't even stay around to watch how he got his hand raised. I just went to bed. Then I watched it today. So I couldn't care less about this fight. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to both fighters. This fight would have been a fucking incredible fight four or five years ago. This fight four or five years ago would have been insane. Literally insane. Like, this fight would have been easily pay-per-view the same way how it was now. This fight four or five years ago probably would have did a million pay-per-view buys. It probably would have did a million pay-per-view buys. But now, when both dudes are so old in the tooth and honestly, both men are washed and should retire, it's just not the same, man. And you can say, you know... Another good example of this is like Chuck Liddell and Randale Silva, right? People wanted those two to fight forever. And it eventually happened. It wasn't necessarily the same because they were both far out of their prime. But then again, that fight was entertaining and back and forth in a war. 
This fight wasn't like that. You had Nate Diaz doing Nate Diaz shit, stalling the fight, doing weird shit. You have Tony. Um, Tony just looked overall sloppy. His boxing is typically way better than it was than it was in that fight. His boxing looked off. Then again, he's fighting at 174 the first time, so maybe he's not used to carrying that weight around um, during fight day. So his boxing looked sloppy. There were times where you know he would just swing out of position and have his back open. And it, it it didn't look good. And the people were saying, you know, Nate looks so good. Dude, Nate looked like washed old Nate, you know? Tony shot for a takedown and got submitted. I was shocked that Tony actually tapped, to be honest with you. I thought he would uh I thought he would just go unconscious for tapping. I don't blame him for tapping when you know you're beat, you're beat, it is what it is. But to say that I was excited for his fight and to do a deep dive on this fight. I'm sorry, guys. I can't do it. I just can't do it because the fight was. It granted, it was a very, it was the best outcome for both men. To be honest with you, because Nate was gonna fight a killer, and Tony was gonna fight a killer, and I think both guys would have got finished bad, very bad, if that would have happened. So the MMA gods didn't want these two favorable sons having that kind of outcome, and fucked everything up. <laughs> and somehow they found each other in the main event. Which again, if it was four or five years ago, this fight would have been fucking insane. But it wasn't. It just wasn't. It, it I, I wasn't entertained watching it, to be honest with you. I'm like, yo, what the fuck? It was like me watching uh, Lawler against, against Nate Diaz. Like, I didn't want to see that shit. No one wants to see that shit. Like, two old dudes going at it. I don't care for that shit. Like, I don't care, man. Like, it, it just wasn't entertaining. It didn't mean anything. I think both men should retire, honestly. I think both, both men should retire. Now, Nate Diaz, this is the best possible outcome for Nate Diaz because if we were to fight Shemaev, we all know he was going to get fed to Shemaev so Shemaev can put the beating on him to lower Nate's stock going into free agency because it's the last fight in his contract. That didn't happen, thank God for Nate. Nate got the W, so now he's a desired free agent. Now, if he does sign with the UFC, which I think he shouldn't, he would get far more than anything he's ever got paid so far. Because he's leaving with a W. Now, if he would have left with a W against Shemaev, that would have been a whole other astronomical conversation and topic there. And, you know, he would have been a highest free agent in MMA right now. But either way, he left with a W when the UFC were trying to make them leave with a loss. So he left on the best terms possible. He got the best possible outcome right now. Literally, the MMA gods blessed him. They're like, "Yo, you served your duty. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna let you ride off to the sunset." Which Nate did say in the, in a post-fight interview that he wants to do boxing. He didn't necessarily alluded to saying, "Actually, I want to do boxing." He didn't say it outright, but he alluded to it. He did, you know, he he he, the, his, his choice of words and his sentencing. Can, it made you knew, know that he was going to boxing after his MMA run is done, which it's done. You know, I think that he should give it up. I think that he should go into boxing, make as much money as he can, and just ride to the sunset doing that. Now, will the UFC let him go that easily? Maybe not. We'll see how it turns out. But uh, I like this outcome for Nate, man. I'm happy that he got off with a win. And I hope he's able to do boxing and make as much money as humanly possible. Now, for Tony, 
I think Tony should just retire. Tony was taking, you know, bad losses left and right. He took a bad TKO loss before this, bad knockout loss before this, excuse me. When you're losing to people like Nate Diaz, who is also washed, there's nothing for you anymore, man. He's 38 years old, about to be 39 soon, very soon, I think in October, fighting in the lower weight divisions, which age does not fare you well in these lower weight divisions. You're losing to guys who are also super washed. There's nothing for you, man. I don't think he can even be, you know, as competitive as like a Jim Miller or something. I don't even know if Tony would want that. Maybe you can have Tony fight Connor, you know, in his comeback fight. Or maybe like a Masvidal or something like that. Like a big name fight in that regard. But anyone else, dude, just give it up. If, if, he's, if you're not going to put him against those two guys, then just retire. Like you did you did everything you can in the sport. It's a shame that you weren't champion. You wasn't able to fight against Khabib the five times that it was booked, unfortunately. But would he be in the UFC Hall of Fame? Absolutely. He's a shoe-in for the UFC Hall of Fame. But um, I just think his time is done, man. You know, his fighting style doesn't age well. And it just he seemed to age overnight after the Gaethje fight. So I just think he should hang it up. I don't want to see him taking any more abuse. He didn't take abuse in this fight. But if he would have fought Lee Jung Leong or, you know, some other heavy hitters at 170, he would have got put away again. And I don't want to see that. So I do think that he should hang it up. So that goes the fights that happened this past week, UFC 279. I'm going to now be going over um, the MMA news slash drama that's going down. And the first one up is the Diago Santos goes to the PFL. And I think this is the right move for him. I think this is a great move for him. Do I think he's going to win that light heavyweight tournament? I don't know. I have to check the PFL's roster. I don't know if I'll necessarily favor him to win the tournament, but... It's obvious that Diego Santos is facing lower level competition in the PFL than he would be in the UFC, and he has a chance to win a million dollars. I think this is a, a very good move for him. I'm kind of shocked that the UFC was willing to let him go so easily. Then we have Connor. Of course, whenever something big happens in MMA, Connor always has to get his hand in it. It's like he he has to be talked about. Literally, someone can retire from MMA and he, He's just commenting something so that people, he's always in, you know, you know, people's mouths, which from a marketing standpoint and marketing yourself is very genius. It's just fucking tiring. But as much as I love to hate on Conor McGregor, he does have a fair point with this. And it's that, of course, after the Nate fight, he responds to Nate post fight saying that you're nothing without me. And as much as I hate Conor McGregor, I have to say that he's right here. Nate Diaz... I'm not going to say he would be nothing, but he would most definitely not be where he is today without Conor McGregor. Nate Diaz, prior Conor McGregor, was making 20 and 20 to fight. He was someone that the UFC was just shitting on, you know, not paying him at all, paying him bullshit, not giving him any real opportunities. Um, It's just an average old fighter for the UFC. Until the Conor McGregor fight, which Conor McGregor specifically asked to to fight Nate when the fight with RDA got canceled, specifically asked to fight Nate, and uh, he made Nate's career. Then again, listen, if Nate would have lost that first fight, then Nate's career wouldn't be where he is now. So yes, part of it is Nate Diaz's own doing, which I'm going to acknowledge that, but it's also 
is also Conor McGregor specifically wanting to fight Nate Diaz and uh, making his career in that regard. So is it entirely Conor McGregor's doing? No, absolutely not. But is a huge part of it is Conor McGregor's doing? Unfortunately, it is. And I hate Conor McGregor. And I always try to, you know, shit on him in any, any, any kind of way I could. So it's hard for me to admit this. But it, there is some validity to this statement, unfortunately. Now, going back to Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz, this has been edited out in the, the UFC broadcast. But Megan Olivia was talking to, to, uh, to Nate Diaz. And Nate Diaz was shitting on The Rock shoe, saying that the shoe deal is bullshit and that the fighters don't get paid for this at all. And, dude, I'm happy that they did this. Now, it sucks that the UFC cut it out. Granted, the video did go viral. We did get the video. Someone, thank God, whoever you are, recorded it from the TV screen and put it up on social media and it has went viral. And I 100% agree with Nate on this. The, the, first of all, the shoe is fucking ugly. Has the Rock's little logo thing, you know, the the thing that was on the back of his ass and rustling. Um, but the shoe just looks like a regular basic shoe. It's not anything too sexy. Comes in black. Comes in red. And I, the fact that you know the Rock did this promo for the shoe, which you see all around in you know the uh, the the main events and the fight cards and that kind of shit, and the Rock. The fucking BMFL was just f- stupid, and him saying, you know, he's thankful for the fighters and this, this, and that, and they put their bodies on the line and this promo and shit. All that talk in a promo, but you don't pay them, you know. So, do you really appreciate the fighters? I think it's bullshit. You don't appreciate the fighters. You don't at all. And on top of that, WME is one of their clients is The Rock, and WME owns. UFC. So a conflict of interest there? Yeah, the writing's on the wall. So I'm not surprised at the deal at all. But to say that you care about the fighters and they put their bodies on the line for our enjoyment and you're thankful for them, but not give them a cut at anything from the shoe deal? Yeah, you don't care about the fighters. And I'm happy that Nate Diaz shit on the shoe and shat on the deal as well. Now we have Henzo Gracie gets into a street fight at NYC. I think Henzo Gracie was downtown in the subway. He was with one of his black belts. He was talking Portuguese. Some guy yells out, talk English, which, listen, bro, and maybe if this is middle America, where it's like a sea of white people who only speak English, I, I'm i not saying it's right, obviously. Like, fucking, the United States is the most diverse country in the world. You're going to have people who speak different languages. If they don't speak your language, why the fuck do you care? But... Saying go speak English in New York City makes no sense. A majority of the population, first of all, New York City is the most diverse city in the world. It's literally the melting pot of the world. You can find every single nationality on earth in New York City. So you're going to come across multiple times a day people speaking languages other than English. So New York City is probably the worst place to actually say this. Not only that, you said it to the worst person, the worst person ever. A red belt in BJJ. So, of course, they get into a little exchange. Henzo takes him down. I don't think Henzo gets into any submission at all. Just holds him in his position and makes him apologize. Which, dude, you got the easiest possible outcome in your stupid little exchange there. Like, Henzo could have easily broke your arm, 
could have snapped your ligaments out of place, could have choked you unconscious, could have beat the ever-loving shit out of you, but he decided to go easy on you and teach you a lesson. You should be extremely grateful and shouldn't be a racist piece of shit anymore. So it just, it was so weird. It made no sense that people were yelling out, you know, go speak, speak English in New York City of all places. Made no sense. But uh, last but not least, the UFC pay-per-view starts with a moment of silence for the Queen Elizabeth, which just passed. And it was met by Booze and the USA champ. And you just got to love USA, man. Listen, I get maybe why the UK is so sad about the Queen's loss. I don't personally see why she's a figurehead in a monarchy system where she literally does nothing and... You know, doesn't have any contribution politically. Just goes around shaking motherfuckers' hands. And look, I have one fan in the UK who's going to rage out after I say this and probably never listen to me again. But listen, if that's your your queen and you, you, and you know, you're sad about her loss, cool. You, you, I respect you for, you know, feeling that way. You can't expect the rest of the world to feel that way, especially the USA. Bro, we showed you what we felt about the monarchy back in 1776 when we spanked that ass. So, for you to expect us to care deeply about your queen, it's kind of comical. I don't know why the UFC even decided to do this. If we were in UK soil, okay, then that makes sense. But we're in fucking Las Vegas. We're beyond far from the UK. So, why are we taking this moment of silence for the Queen Elizabeth who had nothing to do with us? It, it really doesn't make any sense for me, to be honest with you. Now, do I think they should have booed her? No. Like, you know, even if you don't like her, you know, pay her your respects to the dead. Don't speak ill in the dead. So maybe don't boo the dead. But do I think it's hilarious? Absolutely. It was even funnier. Michael Bispin, who is English, he posts, you know, you know, you know, uh, rest in peace to the queen. And there's just a bunch of people in this comment section. Just shitting on the queen, which is fucking hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, I just wanted to uh, to throw that in there and show you that um, American fans suck ass, and they will boo just about anyone or anything. So do not be surprised at this. Now I want to get into the Pichu predictions portion of the podcast, and we have San Hagen against Yadong. And honestly, man, I don't know. I don't know. I simply don't know. I do think Sanhagen is the overall better striker. I don't think people are going to disagree with me there. I think overall Sanhagen throws more volume. But that's kind of been playing to Sanhagen's detriment a little bit. Because yes, he throws volume. But when you look at what the judges score, it's effective damage. Which, Sanhagen, for the most part, he didn't get you on volume. Yeah, he could TKO you. We've seen what he did to Frank Yeager. We've seen what he did to Marais. But for the most part, he's going to get you on volume. So, uh, you know, uh, and Yadong is dangerous. I honestly don't know. I don't know. Actually, let me check the betting odds real quick on the fight. I think Sanhagen opens up as the favorite. Is one of those fights that whoever is the underdog, I would bet for. It's one of those. It's such a close, such a close fight that 
Whoever is the underdog, I would probably bet on. But let me check who is the underdog here real quick for you guys so that you know going into it. All right. Corey Sanhang is a favorite. 215, negative 215 to Yadong, plus 164. So Sanhagen's the favorite, but not by much. Not by much. Honestly, it's not a bad bet to go with Yadong. Especially since Sanhagen's on a two-fight losing streak. Granted, I think he beat Dillashaw. Most people in the world think he beat Dillashaw. It was a close fight with Yan. He was coming up on short notice, unfortunately. But uh, Yadong is not a bad bet. But overall, I think I think Sanhagen could take it. My only issue is if it's an overall five-round fight, if San Diego is not able, necessarily able to finish him, you know, just good, just winning off volume and not necessarily inflicting real damage to your opponent can cause an issue, as we've seen before. So I think overall it's going to be a close fight. I think it's up in the air. I think it's a coin toss. I think if anyone who predicts one winner over the other surely is bullshitting, but... Uh, if you want to bet on the dog and Yadong, I don't think it's a bad bet. Sanhagen minus 215. That's not the best, you know, that's not the best odds in the world. Especially when I'm so unsure of this fight. But if you want to bet on that either, on that too, then I don't necessarily blame you. And then we have a canceled fight, which was um, Sadiq Yusuf against Giga Chikaze. And... I think this would have been a terrible fight for Yusuf. I think Yusuf striking is good. I don't think it's on the level of Giga good. Um, and yeah, Giga did get pieced up by by Calvin Cater really bad, 50-45. Um, really didn't have anything for Cater for the most part. But Cater is a completely different animal from, from Yusuf. I think Giga would have definitely beat Yusuf if that fight would have went through. And now I want to do a brand new portion of the podcast, which is hot takes. So it's my hot take on anything. So it can literally be my hot take on Friday pay, my hot take on this UFC event, my hot take on this, my hot take on that. So it can be literally anything under the sun. It could be literally anything under the sun. And for this episode, I'm going to be going over who per, I would think would win between a prime Anderson and a prime on the Sanya. And first, I want to go into the fighting dynamics. I think this fight will be an extremely boring fight. For the simple fact that both men are extremely calculated. Both men have very high fight IQ. I don't think it would be a war or a slugfest. Obviously, it's not going to be the case. Anderson has a very fight, very high fight IQ. He's not going to just be willingly going into Anderson Silva and giving it, giving it to him in that regard. Anderson Silva is known to not engage unless you engage him. So I don't think this would be necessarily the most entertaining fight. I do think that Anasanya would win in a five-round fight by decision just off points, mostly from utilizing leg kicks. And I'm going to get into that. Anderson Silva, yeah, he, he wasn't known for throwing leg kicks. He did throw front kicks to the body. He did throw head kicks and body kicks. He was mostly known as a puncher. When you look at most of his KOs, just do punching. Granted, 
he did put out Vitor Belfort with a front kick to the face, which is the first time we've ever seen it, which is fucking amazing. I'm so happy I got to see his career and that I saw that live. Well, live on pay-per-view, not live in the arena. <laughs> Either way, I'm happy that I got to saw his entire career and GSP's career as well and John Jones, etc., etc., um, and witness these great moments. But for the most part, Anderson Silva, striking-wise, it's, it's through punching. It's through his counter-punching. It's through his, his fucking fantastic head movement. Anasanya's head movement is very good too. But Anasanya's main game plan and main focus is leg kicks. He his the, the jab for most fighters is Anasanya's leg kicks. So he gets these fights based on points through leg kicks. He wins these fights based on points through leg kicks. What Anasanya is able to do, granted... Is he the most entertaining fighter from a casual standpoint? No. But here's what separates him from everyone else. Typically, when you look at the most dominant fighters in today's era, is typically it's grapplers. Usman being one of them, but up until his loss against Edwards, Khabib being one of them, um, GSP for his era being one of them. Uh, John Jones was, but he can do it all for the most part. So for the early half of his career, he was dominating fighters on the feet. Uh, his takedowns were basically absolute. He was getting them. No one was able to stop his takedowns for a while. Um, towards the later end of his career, he played him more safe. But what Anasanya is able to do is he's able to literally outstrike his opponents. Yeah, not necessarily put him away and not necessarily have the most entertaining fight in the world. But to outstrike his opponents, not only that. His opponents literally can't do any meaningful offense on him. When you understand how difficult that is, most fighters become most fighters who are champion for a while, of course, become more hesitant and not really trying to go out there and get the TKO for the fact that they're not trying to put themselves in harm's way in that regard and they're trying to make their title reign as long as possible, which makes sense, but they sort of become grappling heavy. Because that's the best way to manage the chaos. For Anasanya, who is obviously not known for his grappling offense, he's outstriking his opponents and they have nothing for him. Granted, we'll see how the Pereira fight goes down, but they don't have anything for him. So I think, again, this is all speculation, my hot take. If Anderson Silva were to fight Anasanya, Anasanya would just leg kick him to death. Would just... Get those leg kicks and win off points. I don't think he would maintain that wide range and that wide stance to get out of the way of any of Anderson Silva's flurries. I don't think Anasani would throw too many punches because he knows Anderson Silva's head movement and his prime and counter-striking was fucking phenomenal. I think Anasani would just stay at range, utilizing leg kicks. On top of that, in Anderson's prime, people weren't throwing leg kicks. So... I don't think he would even check most of those leg kicks. He would just take it. It would be an extremely boring fight. But I think in the long run, Anderson Sanya, Anasanya, I said Anderson Sanya. Imagine Anderson Sanya, Anasanya, and Anderson Silva had a fucking baby. It would be the greatest MA fighter of all time. <laughs> but Anasanya, I think in the long run, would win that fight. And that's a segment. The for the hot takes. Again, it's going to be anything under the sun. It's going to be the very last segment of the podcast, but it's going to be a little something I do going forward. Um, of course, I'm going to be spicing it up, adding new things as well. But this is Round 6 MMA Talk, Episode 20. 
Again, I am on iHeartRadio and I am on Amazon Music, of course, being on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms as well. But I'll talk to you guys again next week and hope you guys have some good fights. Bye.